This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there. This is Christopher Milke, and I am your host of Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio's show in medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Today we're joined by Professor Terry Berry, an associate professor of medieval history at Trinity College in Dublin. So thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Berry. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Chris. <gasps> All right. So we have... Um, quite the itinerary today. Your work mainly consists of um, the Anglo-Normans in Ireland. So would you mind telling us a little bit of the backstory, for instance? Um, how did these English and Frenchmen get to be in Ireland in the first place? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of an interesting story because, of <laughs> course, the Norman invasion or the Anglo-Norman invasion of Ireland happened about 100 years after the Norman conquest of England. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about 1169, 1170. And really, how they got involved, because most of the Anglo-Normans came from South Wales, which, of course, as you probably know, is not that far away from Ireland. No, right. And um, the reason they invaded Ireland was not to conquer the country, but there was a pretender to the high kingship of Ireland, a man called Dermot Mara of Leinster, who wanted to become high king of Ireland. And he made the awful mistake of coming to Wales and getting their help uh, to take over Ireland. And what happens, they're so successful militarily that they then really get rid of him. Uh, he dies quite soon afterwards, and we get the beginning of Anglo-Norman lordship in Ireland. So that's the backstory to it. Oh, I see. Of course, the word Anglo-Norman <laughs> is a curious one because yes. it's, it never existed at the time. I see. Because they were called the English or the foreigners. In the Irish sources, they're called the foreigners. And they regard themselves as English, but it's probably more correct to use this modern term, Anglo-Norman, because, of course, it's under 100 years since their forebears came from Normandy to invade and conquer England successfully, and then some of them went to Wales. So mm -hmm. they were English or Anglo, and they were Norman. So that's why we tend to call them Anglo-Norman. I see. Mm. Well, and... Um for my understanding of the um, English society post-1066 is that the everyday people were speaking Anglo-Saxon or yeah, yeah, Old very English, true, very true. and then yeah. the, mm. um, the new breed of nobles um, who came over with William of Normandy were yeah. speaking this um, northern Norman dialect yeah, of French. French. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And you that's that's what I mean. They would still be using that dialect, I think, when they came to Ireland at the end of the 12th century. But um, we probably are getting the beginnings of Middle English as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but then, you know, obviously, all the indigenous Irish are speaking Irish. Of course, yeah. So there was no kind of really meeting of minds, um, d despite the fact we call it the conquest of Ireland or the invasion of Ireland. In the beginning, it wasn't to be like that. It really became a conquest when a year later Henry II of England decided he'd better go over to Ireland because all these powerful uh, Welsh nobles had carved out lands for themselves. And, of course, that was, could be very dangerous yes. for the English crown. So he, he went to Dublin to get the oaths of fealty, both from the Irish chiefs and also from the Anglo-Normans, who led the Anglo-Normans, known to history of Strongbow. And... He, once that was in train, well, then we started to see 
a campaign to conquer Ireland. But mm. the Anglo-Normans never conquered more than two-thirds of the island of Ireland. Usually, yeah. um, what I've heard of about this Norman conquest yeah. of the island of Ireland mm. is that it's this precise connection with Henry II. Yes, it is, of course. That, yeah. you know, particularly that he wanted land for his youngest son, yeah. who had... Yeah. Uh, John. John Lackland. Yeah, yeah John Lackland, <laughs> yeah. Um, and John came over to Ireland as I Lord see. of Ireland as well in the 1180s. And, of course, there's the fake as well. I mean, there's this papal bull, mm-hmm. Laudabilita, by the the only, would you believe, the only English pope so far <laughs> had had uh, produced this bull indicating that uh, Henry had a right to conquer Ireland, uh-huh. uh, which is very, very convenient for the English crown. I think most, I mean, there's still a debate about it, but a lot of historians think it was one of those classic forgeries I see. produced at the time because they needed to bolster his credentials as, as Lord of Ireland. So we have that in the mix as well. There's Nothing lot... changes, does it? No, no. <laughs> No, people wanting what's not theirs, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. That's interesting, though, that there is this precursor story with these Welsh nobles getting involved. Yeah, because yeah. usually Henry II is sort of has the finger pointed to him yes, as yeah, being yeah. the instigator yeah. in this. Yeah. And, well, you mentioned um, the high kingship yeah. of Ireland. Um, yeah. Uh, would you mind telling a little bit more about Just a tiny bit. I <laughs> it's very complicated. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, but the different chief families, like the O'Connors of Connaught and other chief families in Leinster and in Munster, they all produced kings. Mm -hmm. But there would be one high king who would be above all the rest. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. famous one was Turlock O'Connor. He he was there in the 12th century. Mm -hmm. There were also, just to make it even more confusing, (laughs) high kings with opposition as well. So it was a very, very tangled mess, basically, (laughs) I suppose you could call it. And the problem was that Ireland wasn't united under a particular person to meet the threat of these Anglo-Normans. I see. And these Anglo-Normans, they had the stealth fighters and bombers of their period, you know, because they had the military technology and mm-hmm. their organization, and it was very, very hard for the Irish to oppose them. And they were also politically disorganized. So this whole high kingship business was really problematic. Yes, I, I can imagine this. So they're still descendants, you know, of the high kings today, because one of my great friends is an O'Connor, He's uh, a lecturer in archaeology, Kieran O'Connor, in Mm -hmm. Galway. Mm -hmm. And he's directly a descendant of the O'Connor High Kings. And one of the ways you can tell is that most O'Connors have two N's in their surnames. The Royal O'Connors only have Have one. How interesting. Yes. And the eldest surviving O'Connor is called the O'Connor Don these days. Now, unfortunately for Kieran, my friend who's a lecturer in archaeology, he has an elder half-brother, or maybe it's an adopted brother, not quite sure, who's a merchant banker in London. Mm-hmm. But he is half-brother, is the <laughs> O'Connor Don, not Kieran. So we still have the descendants of some of these great families today, rather interestingly enough. Yeah. <laughs> So there is still a connection with Ireland, you know, before the, as I call it, the naughty Norman <laughs> came along, you know. Just a, a personal aside, mm. you know, one of my friends I was studying with at the University of Reading, um, American girl from the state of California, oh, yeah. and she could actually trace her descent back to Henry II. Oh, okay. I think, yes, yeah. I think possibly through uh, maybe one of his illegitimate sons. I can't remember yes, yes, uh, off yes. the top of my head, but I mean, yes. so we, we joke about all of these yes. historic figures being I know, so far I away. Know, and... I know, I um, know. 
what reminds me of, and you've now led me into an area which is not part of my specialism at all, but you probably know of possible finding of the bones of Richard III yes. in Leicestershire. And they, one of the reasons they're able to trace the likelihood that the bones were those of his, they've managed to trace the relations of the female line of his family. And so having done that, they were able to match his mitochondrial DNA I see. with their DNA. And that's one of the crucial uh, scientific things you have to do. So th there's a, a match between their DNA. There's at least two men living mm -hmm. today who gave their swabs, you know, because they were related to the female line of Richard III. And they were able to compare their mitochondrial DNA with that of the skeleton. And there was a match between the two or the three of them. Yeah. So... <laughs> It does happen. It, it does, and there's some... <laughs> Sadly, I don't think I'm related to anyone famous. I'm related to a Supreme Court oh, well, justice, that's, oh, well, that's Oliver good. Wendell Holmes, oh, so yes. that is pretty neat. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard of him. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I was, I was told yeah. that he was, um, he was a liberal for his day because he had no faith in humanity, is, <laughs> is the assessment I've heard, so... I I, yeah. mm. I I I still think that that's particularly funny. Yeah. Getting getting back yeah, to yeah. I'm sorry. Your, yeah. Oh it was no. Your no. fault. You, <laughs> you you went sideways, and then I went even more sideways. <laughs> these things happen. Segway is cool these days, isn't it? You can ride them around. Mm. In terms of this um, conquest, you mentioned that the Welsh and Anglo Normans mm. and the, the mm. foreigners, the foreigners, yeah, um, they never mm. they never conquered more than two thirds yeah. of mm. the island. Were yeah. there were there any parts that were particularly resistant? Yeah, well, I'm sorry to come back to the O'Connors, but particularly okay. Connaught. Connaught was a really difficult nut to crack in the northwest, and it's because the O'Connors were a really tight-knit community. I see. And that's one of the regions that they, there was never really very much penetration by the, the Anglo-Normans, yeah. So in and also right in the south as well, southwest of Cork and Kerry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in Ulster, the uh, Norman uh, penetration uh, was really only along the coastline. There wasn't very, very much depth to it. In the northeast? Yeah. In the northeast, yeah. Sorry, yeah, northeast, yeah. And um, in this instance, the places that were able to... Mount this resistant were either they had the network or mm. an, an organization or were they places that were also inhospitable? Yeah, or yeah, yeah. They were all, you know, they're the more peripheral lands, I you see. know, not the poorer lands. They were the furthest away from Dublin as well. So you would have had a logistical problem, mm -hmm. obviously, especially in the Middle Ages. I mean, it's hard enough feeding an army or supplying an army in the 21st century sure, sure, when you have sure. helicopters and transport planes. But can you imagine trying to supply a medieval army, you know, which is probably four or five days horse ride, oh, yes. you know, from where your stores are? Another curious point is that for places like England mm. or, or France, a, a lot of places in medieval Europe had Roman roads to build off yes, of. And yes, yes, yeah. Ireland was never conquered no, by the that's, Romans. That's right. You're right there, yeah. We did not have any infrastructure like that. Yeah. Oh, I see. What, yeah. So it, I guess it would have mostly been dirt roads rather yeah, than like Yeah, paved. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's yeah. another factor to yeah. consider as well. That's why the major rivers like the Shannon, I always say to my students, they're the major uh, highways or motorways of medieval Ireland. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's where you'd have sent your heavy goods up the river systems because the roads would have been so bad. I see. Mm. And I'm, I'd imagine it would have been the same when the Vikings were visiting Yes, Ireland of course, of well. course, yeah. That's what the Vikings like to go up the riverways <laughs> and, and burn monasteries. Yeah. 
in in terms of the um, Norman presence yeah. in in Ireland, um, we'll we'll talk a bit more um, later on yeah, about right. um, castles. I really do want to talk about castles, but for the um, I'm probably going to disappoint you. They're not quite as romantic as you might think <laughs> they are. <laughs> in terms of the Norman presence yeah. in England, though, um, is it something where there was you know this military elite and then the everyday people, or was yeah, there a yeah. bit of cultural penetration yeah. as well? We have both because, first uh-huh. of all, it's a military and ecclesiastical elite. It's a military elite, really, who mm-hmm. conquer that, you know, the lordship, mm-hmm. the two-thirds of the, the eastern side of Ireland. But they're very small in number. But once they've conquered it and they've, put, they've run out their castles, their network of defences, well, then, once it feels secure, then they can bring in their populations, you know, to settle the towns and villages which were established. So, and obviously there is then uh, acculturation. I think it's absolutely wrong to think that, okay, the Irish are pushed outside the lordship and the Normans right. came in. They never were enough of them to do that. Right, right. M- the vast majority of the Irish population lived in Ireland, were living within the lordship because that's where the population was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, probably living quite successfully. And obviously there was intermarriage uh, eventually. That's very much what happens in England. But the thing about England was that it was a complete conquest. I mean, no one ever thought that one major battle like Hastings would end you right. know, Anglo-Saxon dominance of England, but it did. Right, uh, right. We don't really have that in Ireland. And I so see. there, you know, there was always opposition. And then there's a resurgence in the end of the 13th and 14th century by the Irish. When times get hard, the great European famine and the Black Death that's when the Irish start pushing the boundaries of the lordship back. I see, I you see. Know, so when the lordship, its high point probably is sometime in the early 13th century. <laughs> Elizabeth I then uh, in the 16th century yes. really is the first English monarch to conquer all of Ireland militarily. Right. And, and then it just gets worse. Yes. <laughs> but let's not think about that one. We talked in the first segment about uh, the Anglo-Norman presence uh, in Ireland and yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about castles. You've yeah. done a lot of work with their their castles in Ireland. Yep. So yep. I'll just start out with a very general question. Mm. I mean, mm. um, what sort of things can castles tell us about the Anglo-Norman presence in Ireland? Uh, well, the castles were integral to their power, their military power. Mm-hmm. You had, If you wanted to hold down an area which you had conquered mm-hmm. you know, by an army, you had to obviously produce these uh, defensive fortifications. And, of course, the Anglo-Normans built these castles to do this. And, of course, the first ones they built were ones they could build very quickly mm-hmm. anywhere. So they were earth and made out of earth and timber. Okay. And then they quite quickly then started constructing stone castles, which are much more durable. But, of course, stone castles require a lot of money, a lot of material, lot of expertise. Mm-hmm. The thing about the earthwork castles and timber castles, they were designed to be rough and ready, can be built by anybody really who mm-hmm. has, has a certain knowledge of them to hold an area down. And they were designed that the problem with the, the Anglo-Normans was that there were a very small number of troops and knights fighting in a hostile environment. So they needed to create these defensive strong points, these castles, which could be defended by a small number of men, mm-hmm. I'm afraid. We're very sexist in the... There may have been some women, but generally speaking, I would think there were military forces. They could protect them against a hostile population. So they were the kind of things that you could defend easily against large numbers of Irish 
and that's what they did. So we get the classic ones, which are called the motte, which, of course, is the French word for mound, and all it is is an earthen mound, which they dig with a foss, the bottom of it, uh, uh, and on the top of it they have a, pal- a wooden palisade and a, maybe a mm. tower in the centre. And it gives you height advantage, this motte or this mound, over, the, over your enemy. So you can fire down on your enemy. So mm-hmm. a lot of those, probably between three and 500, were built I see. Uh, in the Lordship of Ireland. They also built another type of earthwork castle, which we called um, Anglo-Norman ringwork castle, which doesn't have the mound. So you have to make the perimeter defense palisade stronger. You have to make sure the entranceway into it is protected by probably a wooden gateway as well. We only probably have about 100 of those, so the vast majority were these Mott mm-hmm. castles and some as well ringwork castles. So these were constructed you know, behind the shield wall of the armies as they advanced, uh, the Anglo-Norman army as it advanced into Ireland. But then within 10 years, very, very soon, they were starting to build in major centres these great stone castles that are associated with medieval period. But I'm afraid to disappoint you that some of our biggest castles are quite small in comparison (laughs) to the great castles of continental Europe or or Britain, you know, especially North Wales. But nevertheless, they did their job. A lot of the castles that you see built on the continent were more... Yeah, later ones probably. Later ones for display. And yeah, in fact, that's what someone asked me yesterday after my lecture. A very good question because she asked me what about their symbolic presence? And of course, it is a symbolic presence. The fact they built this mound. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are we are the Normans. We're going to build these mounds. You can't ignore us. We have changed the landscape of Ireland forever. Yes, because these earthworks still survive in the Irish landscape, which is quite remarkable. Yes, I was yeah. I was going to ask yeah. about survival because I mean with what you find um in the soil yeah. for an for an yeah. earthwork mound it's my understanding is that there's a hill and you have to sort of poke around and find timber posts. Well, post remains holes in the posts. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, in you the, do in scientific the right excavation, I think, uh, Chris. Yes. <laughs> that means, no, I know what you mean. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. 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 But I mean, uh, in so many cases, the I earth see. mound still survives. And that's, of course, why it's so easy to find them, whereas the ringwork castle is much more difficult because they don't have the mound. I see. Um, But the ringworks were built where they already had a naturally defensive location, you know, like a cliff top above a river where they didn't need to... I mean, the Normans weren't stupid. Right. You know, they didn't need to build a mound when they already had a height advantage. They just built a sort of perimeter against the landward side Mm -hmm. of these places. Is there any reason these mounds (coughs) survive... I think there was, until quite recently, a lot of, uh, you know, most Irish people would have known these things were important remnants of the past and would have therefore not have excavated them or gone over them with with agricultural implements. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, a lot are protected by uh, statute, by archaeology acts in Ireland. But um, I think we're quite lucky in Ireland because we're fairly underpopulated uh, you know, outside our major cities. I see. So there isn't terrible pressure on land. So this has protected them. Not a lot of rural development. Uh, well, there's a lot of, there is rural development. I'm oh, not going to say we don't have any, but no, you know, we have enough space for, to preserve what is best in the past, which is great. If you can preserve what's best in the past and develop, well, then that's the best of all ways forward. It is, and it's, it, sometimes it's, it's very difficult when the 
needs and wants of archaeologists comply can co- yes, collide with that, those. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or... We've had real issues with that mm-hmm. with our road because just before our economic crash, we had a lot of archaeology going on as a result of a lot of European money being put into our infrastructure f- to improve our road system. And we've had some really big controversies about Tara because a, yeah. a brand new motorway went. Luckily, it didn't go through Tara. I see. It went beside it, but that you know. There was a lot of controversy about it. But now the roadway is built, and in fact it's further away than the ordinary road was, so it really hasn't impacted too much on Tara. And I suppose the upside is, wherever these new roads were going, there was uh, archaeology done beforehand. So we found a lot more sites that we didn't know about as a result. So there's been a plus to it. Yeah, I mean, it is is a double-edged sword. It is a double-edged sword, yeah. I mean, on one hand, you... You get some sites destroyed, like in the Hungarian city of Győr, for instance. Okay. Um, I believe it's part of the medieval walls are being turned into a parking garage because Ooh. the city needs more yeah. parking garages, yeah. apparently. But at the same yeah. time, in the yeah. past 10 years, there have been a lot of um, very yeah. recent discoveries in Hungary for, yeah. again, motorways. They found a big destruction site dating from around 1241, 1242, the yeah. time of the Mongol invasion. Oh, yes, yeah. So it's... Yeah. Archaeology is it's funny that way, and there's a lot of so many practical concerns yeah, to deal yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, because the problem is that when something becomes really political, mm. you get so many people who suddenly take a stance that nothing should happen. It is wrong this motorway should go uh, and there, and you think you've got to be careful here because if you stop everything, yes. you'll never be able to excavate any sites in the future. You, you know, it, it is a balance in the end, you know. And for a site yeah. like Terra, that was yeah. the old seat of the yes. kingship. Yes, right? yes, 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 yes. You know I mean, how it, I know it, that? <laughs> Go on. Gone with the wind. Oh, okay. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Tara, yes. That was yeah. the name of the plantation of the Yes, Scarlet that's right. You're O'Hara's right. You're absolutely family. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, yeah. everything is related to everything. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> uh, it's funny because uh, one of the two major cities that the norm was captured was Waterford, and Waterford has the best surviving medieval walls and towers Mm -hmm. of any city in Ireland. And I remember when I was a very young academic in the Dark Ages, uh, where this would have been in the early 1980s, going down to Waterford, because I'm particularly interested in Waterford. Their city walls survive a lot Mm -hmm. there, and but the attitude then of the mayor and the city councillors was... This is a remnant of our colonial past. We want to get rid of it. Oh, dear. Thank goodness they didn't do it because now they're proud of being a member of the Walled Towns Association in (laughs) Europe. They see it now as a great advantage to have this because people come from all around the world to see it. Oh, absolutely. So even in my lifetime, I've seen a change in attitudes. A complete one Which is great. Um, You know, that's really what you want to foster. That is Mm. sort of a happy ending. Yes, it is. In my opinion. Yeah. And in terms of survival, yeah, I, I remember you mentioning a lot of these stonework castles. Yes, yes, yeah. The trend on the continent is that in a lot of them were destroyed at various points or sort of turned into later buildings. Yes, yes, um, yeah. So do we see similar trends in Ireland as Not well? Not so much because obviously there's a discontinuity in Ireland mm-hmm. because by the time of the end of the Middle Ages and the coming of the Tudors with the Tudor reconquest, these kind of castles were no longer fit for purpose in an age of gunpowder. 
So a lot of them then became ossified as medieval castles, which is great. Only castles like Dublin Castle, obviously, which was always the seat of power of British rule. That was the symbolic Mm -hmm. seat of power of British rule until 1922, curiously. So Dublin Castle has all the development since the Middle Ages on top of the medieval castle. Limerick to a lesser extent, but most castles, this just didn't happen. So it's very unlike the situation I see in the rest of Europe because of Ireland's particular history, which is great for us medievalists because it means most of our castles are not um, added to in the awful post-medieval period. I shouldn't say awful. (laughs) Some of my best friends are post-medievalists, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I I would actually prefer an addition to, in some cases, rather than what happens in Hungary, which is, for the most part, a complete destruction and pick a century and there's going to be massive destruction of some kind there. But we haven't had that to, you know, we're lucky enough not to have suffered that much, you know. In terms of the size of these castles, I remember that you said that they weren't particularly large. I mean, for... I hate to ask a question like how many people could live in an average castle. Yeah, this is a very difficult question to answer. (laughs) We do have some limited information in the early reign of King John in the early 13th century when we know something about the garrisons of some of these castles, like the great one in Carrickfergus Mm -hmm. in County Antrim, and that's a major castle, a bit like Trim Castle in Meath. And the garrison is very, very small. But the problem is, when they mention a garrison, who are they talking about? Are they only talking about those of aristocratic connections, you know, knights, etc.? Or are they talking about all the foot soldiers? My guess is they're probably not, because they didn't really count. And we have no idea. Okay, that's a military garrison. But we have no idea, because all these places were centers of... Uh, law giving mm-hmm. as well and they were money centers you know where money was distributed as well as being military centers so I couldn't really guess what a population size of one of these castles was but I would think probably you're talking about at least a hundred and something people if I was going to guess oh, right. you I know see. something like that yeah but um, we'll never know because the uh, contemporary references sure. are not good enough to give us anything more than the garrison size. And then I'm not quite sure. It always seems so easy when it says of the garrison of so many men, but what does that mean? And archaeology is not going to help us either, I think. Even if we find about 400 skeletons, uh, we can't say these all these people died in... 1195. Yeah, it's an interesting question you asked there, and I'm afraid (laughs) it's one of the things we just have to sort of guess about. And Well, I mean, I I think it's good to be aware of these things, because for a lot of people in the Middle Ages, there was no need to mention, you know, the lady who did the laundry. No, no, they didn't count in a feudal society. Sadly, that's why I wouldn't like to live in the Middle Ages. That and dental work (laughs) <laughs> or major surgery. I say to my students, yeah. I love studying Middle Ages, but I'd have hated to live yeah. in them. Some people I know are absolute romantics, yeah. which is why they study the past for me. Yeah. I think I will stick with indoor plumbing. <laughs> you could probably smell the castle before uh, you reach this. Yeah. <laughs> Already talked so far, and I wanted to talk a little bit about some of your work involving uh, urban development and the sort of tension between um, yeah. tension or maybe lack of tension between mm. castle and town. Yeah, Ireland, of course, is different again. I'm sorry to keep on saying it's being different, <laughs> but when you say urban, it really depends what you mean by urban, but there mm-hmm. were very, very a small number of real towns or indeed cities in Ireland. I see. But obviously, the big towns on the East Coast, like Dublin, the, the capital, mm-hmm. Cork in the South, Waterford, 
places like that were real towns or indeed were real cities. And curiously enough, only one of those three that I've mentioned that had a great castle was the capital, Dublin. And that was started by Henry II when he came to visit Ireland in 1171 to ensure the control of the country. And he ordered that a wooden hall be constructed for his infant civil service, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the civil servants who followed him. Mm -hmm. And from that, we think the great castle that we know today uh, was, was constructed. It was constructed in the corner of the city walls and we do have archaeological evidence from one of the towers of the castle. The base of the tower is excavated and it was constructed on top of pre-existing buildings. So there's no doubt that the urban inhabitants of Dublin had no say in the end of the 12th century. There was no such thing as a sort of planning process or compensation. The king just ordered that this castle was going to be there And it was there, and all the unfortunates who were living there, the houses got raised to the ground and no compensation. But we don't really get much information about that from Mm -hmm. the sources because our medieval sources aren't as good as those in our neighbouring island of England when, of course, we know the number of houses which were raised by the Norman army in England because they are mentioned in Doomsday Book in 1086 when William the Conqueror wanted to find out the taxable capacity of his new kingdom. So you learn about the number of houses that were destroyed to make room for his castles. Mm -hmm. The same thing was happening in Ireland, but because we have no Doomsday Book, we just don't have the records. But we at least do have the archaeology for Dublin where we do know you know, it's constructed on top of existing people's dwellings. Okay, and just a brief work off of what I know for the case of English towns is that for the later Middle Ages, a lot of so-called defensive structures like town walls were, one, built piecemeal, Mm. Mm. and two, uh, there was a defensive element to English town walls, but in a Mm. lot of cases, I mean, the presence of town walls and town gates were more for status rather yeah, than yeah, for functionality. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. a town gate is something that can be yeah. used in a variety of yeah. different ways, yeah. but um, mm. yeah. I mean, completely walling an entire mm. city was um, one, having a city funding itself yeah. to do this yeah. is a different scenario. We can trace this actually in Ireland because the Crown grants Muirage grants to the major cities and Waterford is a very good example because Waterford seems to be we can find the complete line of the defences of Waterford which is quite something except it's quite small you know mm-hmm. that's what I'm saying that because the population of Ireland was probably less than a million or about a million mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages I mean these towns we're talking about these cities well, were right. probably only a few thousand people in uh, numbers, but we can trace the whole extent of the wall because Waterford had a series of Moorish grants from English kings, which meant that they could levy taxes on commodities being imported through their port, and the money theoretically went on constructing the walls. And remarkably, Waterford seems to have spent its money on its walls and its towers because we know that in other towns, they got the money, mm-hmm. but somehow the money went sideways. Mm-hmm. It never went into the walls properly. But Waterford obviously were very regular people. They used the Muirage Guards to construct their castles, uh, their city walls. Indeed, you could almost say the fortune of Waterford was based on alcohol because <laughs> it was a major importer of wine from France and I Spain, see. mainly France. And not only was Waterford importing wine into Ireland, 
It was also being used as an entrepot for the wine coming from France that was then re-exported to Skimberness in Scotland to supply the English Crown's army fighting against the Scots. I see. And, of course, the canny citizens of Waterford, they gave a tax to the wine coming in, and they gave another tax when it went out. I see. So <laughs> if you were a burger of Waterford, you were doing a very nice trade in this and making a lot of money. In Ireland, you probably needed... I mean, they were symbols of wealth, but you probably needed the security of those walls as well because sure. it wasn't safe. It really wasn't safe in comparison to the situation in, in England. England. So was there a lot of faction fighting and things like that going on in the oh, yeah, there centuries was. afterwards? Yeah, 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 there was, yeah. There was a lot of lawlessness because we can learn about those because they hit the judicial records. And, um, I mean, there was no police force, as you're probably aware. I mean, everyone carried a dagger with them and would use it quite a lot if they had a... Rather than fisticuff, someone usually would get got stabbed to death. And, of course... You're okay if you're a noble person because you'd have your own bodyguards with you to prevent that happening. But they're pretty lawless society, sure. you know, no internal police force. So. Well, and it's sort of difficult to imagine. I mean, in terms of people going on pilgrimage, for instance, yes, in a lot of yeah. places that these... They talk about the Crusades being an armed pilgrimage, mm. which is a problematic term yeah, yeah. in and of itself. Yeah, and one, yeah, of but, my, yeah. one of my professors, her assessment of that was... All pilgrimages were armed yes, in yeah. the Middle Ages by yes, absolutely yeah, by, yeah. by the nature of their definition. Absolutely, yeah, you did, yeah. And, and in some way, I suppose you could say the pilgrims, you know, the Crusades are almost like a safety valve for Western Europe as well. You know, you know you're exported your men with guns, sorry, men with knives. We yes. had no guns in those days, but you know, go be violent elsewhere. Yeah, go, yeah, <laughs> go, yeah and you get a plenary indulgence for the yes, Pope, yes, yes. you know. <laughs> You have our blessing to you go have be our violent blessing, yeah. elsewhere. But you see, we don't really have the growth of urban communities, real urban communities in Ireland, you know, like you do in England or in the rest of Europe, apart from the, you know, the major port towns. Right. Uh, and in, on the West Coast, it would only be Limerick and then Galway. But Galway was a late medieval. I it see. grew in the late Middle Ages. And actually, it grew on a wine trade as well from the Iberian Peninsula from Spain okay. that came all the way around and was exported. I don't know why alcohol has suddenly become so important here, but, <laughs> it, you know, it certainly made a lot of people very rich. Oh, wine, wine yeah. trade was also very important in Hungary. I yeah. mean, most from the tiny, tiny, tiny bit of reading I've done on the subject, mm. it was one of the hottest commodities to um, sell to cr the city of Krakow in Poland wow. from Hungary. Yeah. So, wow. And also a nice record of King Sigismund of Hungary bringing over nice Hungarian wine to... In his visit in England in the early 15th century and the English took a sip of it and then promptly put it down. They did <laughs> not seem to care for this very yeah. strong, very heavy yeah. Hungarian yeah. wine. Amazingly enough, we have some documentary evidence. I've seen it myself for the existence of one or two vineyards in Southeast Ireland no in kidding. the Middle Ages. We don't have any today, I'm afraid. You don't come to Ireland for the sun. I see. Uh, you come for the rain. You can actually <laughs> grow wine in um, plastic tunnels, but it's not very good. I've tasted some. But there were certainly vineyards in, you know, because as we know, probably the ambient temperature was slightly higher oh, right. throughout Europe in the sort of the warm period. So uh, even in the Middle Ages, it would be a niche market, I think, to be drinking Irish wine. <laughs> yeah. And so the wine trade is very important for the development of towns. Yeah. But yeah. Is there any particular reason or set of reasons why urbanization doesn't happen in yeah. Ireland the way yeah. it does in yeah. the UK or yeah. on the continent? Our, um, well, one of the reasons, I think, is that uh, we've always had a great 
percentage of um, of settlements that are not nucleated. Dispersed settlement has always been important in Ireland. I see. And the Irish population, by and large, lived in dispersed farms. It would really only be the Anglo-Irish or the Anglo-Normans, or the Anglo-Irish as they became, who would be living in the villages that the Normans would have planted and in the towns. So there would always be this tension between the original dispersed settlement throughout medieval Ireland mm-hmm. and the imposed nucleation of the Normans inheriting from the Hiberno Norse, the Vikings, because it's the Vikings who establish our main ports on the East Coast. Right. Because, of course, like again, Dublin. we don't have, yeah, like Dublin and Waterford again, because, of course, we don't have uh, the Romans, so we can't blame the Romans for bringing urbanization. <laughs> so I think that's probably one of the reasons we don't really get a growth in urbanism until the modern period. And even in modern Ireland, our cities are quite small by European context. And there's still a lot of dispersed settlement. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we have plenty of space. We may be a small island, but we don't have a vast population. So, you know, this dichotomy between urban life and the castles happened, but only in a small number of cases. I see. And It, um, it marks off Ireland, you know, the history of medieval Ireland as being rather different from that of continental Europe, I think, you know, economically. But other other major parts of the trade in the Middle Ages, of course, was our wool oh, okay. from our sheep. But it was very coarse wool. Mm-hmm. Uh, our wool was regarded as, you know, the nasty stuff. I it see. wasn't high-quality wool, but nevertheless, it didn't matter. Uh-huh. Uh, it was exported, uh, you know, through all the major wool towns in Europe and was another very profitable enterprise for the great hinterlands of Anglo-Norman Ireland. So, I mean, our trade was still, you know, it wasn't based on one thing. It was based on, you know, a whole Several group of things. things yeah. Yeah. And, of course, uh, hides as well because from our cattle. So there'd be all these raw materials going out and it would be the luxury goods coming in like wine and things we don't produce. Because, again, we have very few uh, metal resources. So uh, most would have had to be imported into Ireland because with this trade, there had to be, it had to be two ways, of course. In terms of trade, yeah. you know, it was mostly neighboring places like England, France that yeah. were the big partners. Yeah. It wasn't only those places. They were the major trading points, but I we... See. Ireland also traded with the Mediterranean, Italy, believe it or not. We did a lot of trade because okay. of our hides going there for the leather products. I see, right. Also into Scandinavia as well. So Ireland did trade with most of Western Europe and Mediterranean Europe. Yeah, but obviously our major trading partners would have been the Kingdom of England, obviously, and then you know France, especially the part of France which was still English, because of course we, one always easily forgets that you know the bits that were for producing the wine sure. was still under the control of the English Crown under the late Middle Ages. So it was almost like an internal trade, you know. I see, right, right, right. Well, I mean, that sort of trade is easier um, to do in a lot of cases rather than having to go from town to town to town paying yes, toll after yeah. toll after toll after toll. Yeah, it, of course it is, yeah. Another major export would have been fish, especially herring. And, of course, fish would have been very important to the Irish economy because, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, as you probably know, you were supposed to fast from meat uh, all of Lent, all I think, wasn't Lent. it? Mm-hmm. So there was a big ready market for Irish well, they weren't 
you know, fish that was being caught <laughs> off Irish waters and re- then exported, probably salted yeah. to preserve it. Because, of course, we didn't have these great refrigerated lorries you have today. You had to sort of souse it in, in salt or something so it didn't go off too soon. Fish and figs are very popular foods during Lent because they can be dried and preserved. Yes, 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 yeah. And Ireland, you know, Ireland was part of that uh, economy. Um, one thing I did want to ask, I know that you said that the towns, you know, are tend to be smaller in scale. I want to ask about markets and yeah. fairs, since yeah. we're talking about this economic mm. aspect yeah. of it. In a lot of places where towns develop, it's very clear that at some point there's an area where mm. there's a lot of market activity, yeah. whether yeah. it's a square or more yeah. of a yeah. blob. It, so Well, one of the places that immediately jumps to mind when you mention that to me is a place in County Meath, which is a big county, mm-hmm. very close to Dublin, a very rich farming county. Mm-hmm. And one of the important smaller towns, of course, is Kells in County Meath. And I'm particularly interested in it because, of course, our most famous manuscript in Trinity, where I'm from, is the Book of Kells, it's called. This famous gospel book. Now, it's only called the Book of Kells as a modern suggestion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether it ever saw Kells, I'm I'm just not sure. But Kells is an important centre before the Normans came along because it was an important early medieval monastery. But beside the early medieval monastery, there was a market centre and there was a market cross. And that formed the the centre of the medieval town of Kells. And that cross was there until quite recently. I think it's had to be recited because several lorries have hit it. Because obviously the problem with having a medieval cross in the middle of the major junction is... (laughs) It gets in the way a bit. So there are places where we know where the market took place. It is the center, the core of a particular urban concentration. And Kells is an interesting one because the market cross still survives. And and when we wanted to have it moved, there's a great outcry of the local population that didn't want it moved from where it had been, uh, I suppose so, historically since probably a thousand years. You know, the, why should it be put into a protection somewhere? But, mm-hmm. you know, I think it did, in the end, move, yeah. There, there would have also been a lot of seasonal fairs. Yes, you know, yes. Um, things and that we can trace a few that, of oh, those cool. through the documentary sources. But uh, I'm sorry to keep on repeating uh, in, into this to say our documentary sources are pretty problematic. Yes. There were seasonal fairs. Again, we can learn a lot about them in Dublin because Dublin and Waterford and Wexford would, would uh, we have contemporary historical documentation about it. I wanted to conclude our show today. Yep. Um, it's It's been a really fantastic talk. Uh, I just wanted to ask you sort of about ongoing projects and any yep. plans you might have uh, for research in the future. Well, yeah, like any academic, One's never really finished with one's research, Mm. but um, I wrote a book called The Archaeology of Medieval Ireland quite a long time ago now, the real first textbook in looking at the medieval archaeology of our country. And I'm now engaged with my publisher again in doing a new edition. Of course, when I wrote it, I didn't realise it was about the last time one could have written a comprehensive account of the archaeology of Ireland (laughs) before all the infrastructural improvements which led to all this burst in archaeology. Now, if I want to do equivalent, I would have to produce probably four or five monographs at least. So I'm not doing that, of course. I'm producing yet another stem volume hopefully, in which I'm trying to analyse everything that was, insofar as I know it, all the new additions to our knowledge and understanding of the medieval past that I can access. And it should be finished this year, and it would be finished this year, (laughs) except I'm just so busy lecturing and things like that. 
Uh, my publishers don't know this yet, but I have to tell them it's going to take another year, I think. Oh but nevertheless, these things happen. So that's something I'm really involved in at the moment. I'm also very interested in a person who shares the same surname as me, this guy, Gerald of Wales, Gerald de Barry, one of the great chroniclers of the Anglo-Norman invasion, who has got a lot of criticism because he was very, very, he despised the Irish. But then he despised the Welsh because he was a high-born cleric, mm. medieval cleric, regarded these people as fairly basic. He thought they weren't really worth much. But as a medieval writer, he did take the advantage of visiting Ireland twice. So okay. he did write with some knowledge. And what he says about what he sees on the landscape I think is pretty accurate. No, he's obviously not 100% accurate, but then who of us are? But he does give us some kind of insight into the Anglo-Normans who invaded Ireland in 1169-70, many of whom were his relations, of course. Mm. So obviously he's going to say how wonderful they were. You know, he's never <laughs> going to say a bad word about his relations. But then, you know, you'd be a pretty bad person in a family if you did that. So you'll be Terry Berry writing about Jerry Berry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. My students laugh in a pityingly kind of way when I said, look, we've got to rename this guy. We can't keep on calling him Geraldus Cambrensis. He's Gerald de Barry. They know I'm never going to win this crusade. <laughs> so I'm on my one-man crusade for, for this poor e ecclesiastic. We look forward to it. Thank and, you. And um, we thank you very much no, thank for you, joining Chris, us. It was today. enjoyable. Thank you. And for the listeners back home, be sure to visit us on the web at www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu slash radio. Be sure to send us an email to medievalradio at ceu.hu, and be sure to like us on Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.